Last week, the two chapters we looked at dealt with the life of King Hezekiah, who was really one of the better kings of Judah. And we saw how in the threat of the Assyrian invasion, Hezekiah kept his eyes focused on the Lord. And we remember that very vivid scene where Hezekiah received a letter from one of the enemies among the Assyrians. And he took that letter and spread it out before the Lord at the Lord's house. And uh, the Lord spared the city of Jerusalem. Now, as is common in the prophetic books of the Bible, we're not talking about a strictly chronological kind of order. Matter of fact, the events of Isaiah chapter 38 happened before the events of chapters 36 and 37. You'll see as we come right on to it here, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. How do you like that? You're sick. Pastor comes and visits you. He has his little vial full of anointing oil, and uh, he's talking with you, he's praying with you, and, uh, but he's not going to anoint you with oil and pray for your healing. Matter of fact, he looks you square in the eye, and he says, you're not going to make it. Set your house in order. You're going to die. I mean, that's real pastoral comfort there, isn't it? You gotta, something needs to be said, maybe, for, Hezekiah, uh, for Isaiah's bedside manner there. Now, we're not told how Hezekiah became sick. It may have been through something obvious to everybody. It may have been through a very mysterious way, known only to God. But we do know this. The sickness was permitted by God. God allowed this sickness to be in Hezekiah. And God had a purpose in it. And God was very merciful to Hezekiah, don't you think? When he came to him and told him, set your house in order, because you're not going to live through this, you're going to die. Not all people are given the time to set their lives in order. Wouldn't that be a precious gift? To, to be given some advance warning of when you're going to die. I mean, if you knew when that time was for yourself, let's say that the Lord came to you and told you today, you're not going to live another day. Then you would have time to get your heart right with God, to set your attitude and, and to maybe make amends with somebody that you should repent before and get things right in your life. There's another factor in this that doesn't jump right out to us from verse 1 of Isaiah 38, but if we compare some passages in 2 Kings, we come to the understanding that Hezekiah was 39 years old at this time. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, who's uh, 39 and older, but you get the point here, right? He's not a terribly old man. God comes up to him and he says, you're not going to live through this sickness, you're going to die. So what does he do? Look at verse 2. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord. Do you know why he turned his face toward the wall? Because he was going into his prayer closet. You get the idea that maybe he's laying down on a bed and there's visitors around in his room. You know, he's in a sick room and there he is laying down on the sick bed. And Isaiah comes in that beautiful bedside manner and says, dude, you're going to die. And so what does, Isaiah, what does Hezekiah do? He turns away from the people and he turns to God and to God alone. He's not praying to the people. He's praying to God. Even though he's in a room full of people, even though he's there on a sickbed, he's going into his prayer closet. And he prays, look at verse 3. 
And he said, remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now, honestly speaking, to our ears, doesn't the prayer of Hezekiah sound almost ungodly? His focus is on self-justification and on his own merits. It's pretty much as if he's coming to God and saying, Lord, I've been such a good boy, and you're not being fair to me. Remember what a good boy I've been, and come and rescue me, Lord. Friends, that's not how any one of us should pray. But I want you to understand that this was a valid way for Hezekiah to pray. You see, under the old covenant, this was a valid principle on which to approach God. Passages like Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28 show that under the old covenant, God basically had a deal with Israel. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'll curse you. Well, you know what? Hezekiah is coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I pretty much obeyed you. Bless me. On that principle, David could write in Psalm 15, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Well, how about that? None of that is us perfectly. Yet God invites us to come to him. You see, under the new covenant, we're blessed not on the principle of our obedience. Under the new covenant, We're blessed on the principle of faith in Jesus Christ. Hezekiah's principle of prayer is not appropriate for a Christian today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Do you know what that means? It doesn't mean to tack on in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer. To pray in the name of Jesus is an attitude of heart. And it's an attitude of heart that says... God, I am not coming before you in my own works, in my own righteousness, in who I am. I am coming before you in the works, in the righteousness, and in who Jesus Christ, my Savior, is. That's what it means to come in the name of Jesus. Friends, Hezekiah didn't have the name of Jesus. He lived under the Old Covenant. If you notice it too here, it says in verse 3 that Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now, why was Hezekiah so undone at the prospect of death? What do you think the Apostle Paul would have said if somebody would have came to him and said, Paul, you're going to die tomorrow. You know what he'd say? Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) To live is Christ, to die is gain. Yes. Matter of fact, at one time in his life, Paul said that he was hard-pressed between the two. He had a hard time making up his mind. Now, please, Paul would never kill himself, but Paul lived at times in his life under such a constant threat of persecution that he could essentially end his own life by letting down his guard. Do you understand what I mean? Just by kind of letting down his guard, his enemies could come upon him and kill him. And Paul said, you know, sometimes I wonder if I just shouldn't do that. Then I get to go home and be with Jesus. But that's not the attitude of heart we see in Hezekiah at all, do we? 
Hezekiah, in his mind, feels like he has to grasp on to life, to this life, with everything he has. And the prospect of losing this life, well, it means everything to Hezekiah. Now, why? Well, we're going to discuss this a little more fully later on in our study tonight. So let's jump on to verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, and I will add to your days 15 years. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, the word of the Lord comes to Hezekiah, get your house in order, you're going to die. He prays, he comes before God and says, Lord, and I don't mean to make light of this, Lord, look at what a good boy I've been, please heal me. And God says, okay, I will. I'm going to add to your days 15 years. Now, there's one question we should probably get out of the way immediately. Does this mean that Isaiah was a false prophet? I mean, some people would tell you so. They would say, see, when Isaiah said, you're not going to live through this, you're going to die, he was a false prophet because that's not how it worked out. You know, it's always funny to me when people try to bring up uh, supposed contradictions from the Bible. And I suppose this is the kind that somebody would bring up and say, well, see, here's a contradiction here in the Bible. Uh, I'm delighted to deal with it just for a moment, but before I do, let me just say that I've never found a person who could really give me the best problem passages in the Bible. I mean, from my own study of the Bible, I've seen some of the tough places where you just scratch your head and say, hmm, man, I don't know. Now, I'm not going to tell you what they are. But uh, and none of them is an irresolvable conflict by any means. But I just find it humorous that the, the people who go out there spouting the line, well, you know, the Bible's full of contradictions. Once I hear what they have to say, I say, man, you call that a problem. I could show you tougher passages than that. And of course, this, this isn't difficult at all. First of all, we could say Hezekiah did die. Look at what Isaiah said to him there in verse 1. And by the way, we believe that Isaiah's words were chosen by God, don't we? Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. To whom could that not be said to tonight? I'm looking out at a room full of people tonight that should the Lord tarry, should the Lord not come for his church in the next, you know, soon years, we're all going to die. Every one of us. Every one of us could take the exhortation to set your house in order because you're not going to live, you're going to die. The mortality rate from the human race, it's 100%. You live, you die. So, Hezekiah did in fact die. Just not as soon as was implied by Isaiah's first prophecy. Secondly, whenever God announces judgment, it's almost always given as an invitation to repent and receive mercy. We find this in the case of Nineveh, right? Jonah the prophet comes to Nineveh. By the way, there's just something my mind flashed on, and I hope this isn't too confusing for anybody on the tape or something like that. But you know how in the book of Isaiah we've been speaking repeatedly about the Assyrians, the Assyrians, the Assyrians, and what a uh, strong and, and wicked and cruel people they were and, and how they wanted to destroy uh, Israel and Judah. 
Well, do you know what the capital city of the empire of the Assyrians was? Nineveh. That's why Jonah hated him. I mean, this was the capital city of your worst enemy. So God tells him to go preach to Nineveh, and the message he preached is basically, you know, God's going to destroy this place in three days or in some short period of time. And what do they all do? They all repent. Well, I've heard people say, well, you see, Jonah was a false prophet because he said God was going to destroy the city, and he didn't. Friends, that's a lot of nonsense. Jonah was a true prophet. But inherent in the announcement for judgment was an invitation to repent and to receive mercy. There's nothing unusual about that. There's nothing strange about that whatsoever. By the way, might I say, does anybody want it here any different? Do you want the Lord's exhortation to you to be the final word and not an invitation to your repentance and to receive mercy? Of course not. So what does the Lord say to him? Verse 5, go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. Can we say that Hezekiah's prayer was important? By all indications, if Hezekiah had not made his passionate prayer, then his life would not have been extended. Prayer matters. And just the other day, and we were thanking God for it in our time of worship beforehand. A friend of somebody in our congregation, the man was literally given up for dead by the doctors. The man was on life support systems at the hospital, and the guys at the hospital were saying, pull the plug, this guy's brain dead, he's gone, just forget about him. But they prayed for him. The man walked out of the hospital, walked out of there. Now, you might say, well, you know, coincidence and this and that. Well, I would believe not a chance. If they wouldn't have prayed, that man wouldn't have been healed. If Hezekiah wouldn't have prayed, he wouldn't have been healed. Matter of fact, God was very merciful to Hezekiah. We, we could say that God gave Hezekiah two gifts. First, he gave him the gift of an extended life. That's a gift right there, right? Fifteen more years. But secondly, he gave Hezekiah the gift of knowing that he only had 15 years left. And that's a gift too, isn't it? Then he knows, I, I have to be serious about uh, numbering my days and setting my house in order. If Hezekiah were wise, this would give him the motivation to walk right with God and to set his house in order. So that's not all. Look at it in verse 6. It says, I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Not only did God promise to heal Hezekiah and to extend his life, he also promised to deliver Jerusalem from the armies of the Assyrians. Now do you see why I say this chapter happened before the previous chapter? Because in the previous chapter, the Assyrian army was wiped out. So this had to happen before this, when the Assyrian army was still at a threat. And it may very well have been that just when the Assyrian army was encircling Jerusalem and Hezekiah was going on this, that he was also deathly ill. So the Lord was ministering to him. By the way, isn't it interesting here that there's a connection between the promises? The connection of the two promises indicates that one would confirm the other. When Hezekiah recovered his health, he would know that God would also deliver him from the Assyrians. You know, when Hezekiah didn't die in the next couple days, he'd say, Lord, thank you. And I also know that you really are going to deliver us from the Assyrians because you made both promises together. It's a package deal, Lord. You're not going to let down on one end of the stick. 
Now he goes and he gives a sign to confirm the promise. Look at verse 7. It says, And this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing which he has spoken. Behold, I will bring the shadow on the sundial, which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz, ten degrees backwards. So the sun returned at ten degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. Well, how about that? God says, listen, I'm even going to give you more than a promise. I'm going to give you the sign. Friends, God is just showing mercy upon mercy to King Hezekiah. First, he heals him. Secondly, he gives him a knowledge of the end of his days. And thirdly, he says, I'm going to give you a sign. This is just nothing but the love and mercy of God. Would any of us stand here and blame God if he were to say, hey, Hezekiah, I said it and you believe it. How dare you not take my word for true? But in real love, God gave Hezekiah more than he really needed, more than he really deserved. That's how good God was to Hezekiah. You know, God's that good to you too. It really should be enough for God to just say from heaven, I love you. I love you. Lord, I don't know if you love me. I, I love you. What, are you going to call God a liar? You going to tell God he doesn't mean it? It should be enough for us that God just says it. But God says, no, I'm going to go extra far. I'm going to send my son and have him live as a humble man and die a cruel, undeserved death on a cross to demonstrate my love for you. And that's what God did for us at the cross. Friends, you never need or never can have a greater evidence of the love of God for you than Jesus Christ crucified on your behalf. And isn't it marvelous that God didn't just say that he loved us, but he he went further. I mean, we should just be satisfied if God would say he loved us, but he went further than that. He said, I want to demonstrate it. I want to assure you of my love. And what a sign he gave Hezekiah here. He says, behold... I will bring the shadow of the sundial 10 degrees backward. God promised to do something completely miraculous for the confirming sign. And it happened just exactly as God promised, that the sun returned 10 degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. There's a couple of things we should say about this miracle. First of all, we should say that it was a wonderfully appropriate sign, wasn't it? What happens when the clock ticks back, you know, an hour? It means that you have more time. What was God giving Hezekiah? More time. So God matched the sign with the promise beautifully. The second thing we think when we look at this miracle, we say, how did you do that, Lord? You know, God God could have simply moved the sun back. Right? We do daylight savings time. Maybe God did it that day. Joshua praying, the sun stood still in the sky, and maybe the Lord... Now, listen, we're talking about people who like to take pot shots at the Bible. Some people say, well, look at the Bible here. It says in the book of Joshua that the sun stood still in the sky, where we really know that it's the earth and its rotation that makes the days pass. And so how uh, bad the Bible is, you know, for that, and they say, come on. You don't talk about, you know, uh, the morning earth rotation or the evening earth rotation. You talk about sunrise and sunset. 
Even though it's not the sun that's moving, it's the earth. It's the way we talk. The Bible speaks to us in modern language, in language we can understand, in language that anybody can understand. So it could have been that God moved the sun back, or he could have just provided the miraculous appearance of it on the sundial of Ahaz. doesn't really matter, does it? God could have done it any way he pleased to do it. You know, God has miraculous resources, miraculous ways that we know nothing about. So God just did it. Now look at here at verse 9. This is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. Now this is kind of unique, isn't it, in the book of Isaiah? Here's a little passage written to us by King Hezekiah. I think this passage is fascinating. Verse 10. I said, in the prime of my life, I shall go, go to the gates of Sheol. I am deprived of the remainder of my years. I said, I shall not see Yah, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My lifespan is gone, taken from me like a shepherd's tent. I've cut off my life like a weaver. He cuts me off from the loom, from day until night. You make an end of me. I've considered until morning like a lion, so he breaks all my bones from day until night. You make an end of me. Like a crane or a swallow, I chattered. I mourned like a dove. My eyes fail from looking upward. Oh, Lord, I'm oppressed. Undertake for me. Hezekiah is telling us the prayer he prayed, crying out to God, when he first learned that his death was imminent. Now, if you notice, there's a word he uses in verse 10. He says, in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol. I want you to remember that word. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the grave or the place of the dead. And so what Hezekiah goes, I'm going to go to the grave. And look at what he says in verse 11. I said, I shall not see Yah, the Lord, in the land of the living. Now what would you or I, doesn't this make you scratch your head a little bit? You almost want to go to Hezekiah and say, dude, you'll see the Lord in heaven. What's wrong with you? I mean, don't you believe you're, you're saved? Don't you believe that, that the Lord loves you? He's going to take care of you? Don't you believe in the promise of the world beyond? But we need to understand that Hezekiah's pain at his approaching death was increased as he believes that in the grave he will no longer see the Lord. Now we start really scratching our heads and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't they believe in life after death in the Old Testament? Well, yes, they did. But they didn't have a clarity of understanding of the world beyond. Hezekiah's thinking is based in the cloudy understanding of the world beyond before something happened. You know what happened? Keep your finger here in Isaiah chapter 38. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Normally, I just read this passage to you, but this is such an important passage. I want you to read it with your own eyes. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In other words, 
the understanding of life and immortality was dark and cloudy and murky before the time of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, in light of the finished work of Jesus, we have a much clearer understanding of it. The Bible uses three main words to describe where people go when they die. The first word is Sheol. The second word is Hades. And the third word is Gehenna. Now, Sheol is a Hebrew word that has the idea, again, as I said before, of the place of the dead or the grave. The Greek word Hades, which, as I said, is a Greek word found in your New Testament, it's the equivalent of Sheol. In the Greek vocabulary, Hades was the place of the dead or the world beyond. In the Bible, Sheol and Hades generally have the same meaning. Now, Gehenna is a Greek word borrowed from the Hebrew language. It's oftentimes translated hell in your Bibles. For example, turn to Mark chapter 9. And if you don't mind here, we're going to spend a little bit of time because, well, let me tell you exactly why we're going to spend a little bit of time on this. Every once in a while on a Wednesday night or, or some other service, uh, we'll open it up for Ask Pastor David Anything. Or on our internet site, we have, you know, send a question to Pastor David. Well, one of the most common questions we get is, what happens when you die? Well, Hezekiah didn't really know, did he? But we can know, so let's take a look at this. Again, we're talking about Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 43, where we read, And if your hand makes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go to hell. That's the Greek word Gehenna. Now, it's a Greek word borrowed from a Hebrew word, as I'll explain in just a minute. It says, Into that fire which shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Now, again, this word that's translated hell there is the Greek word Gehenna, which is from a Hebrew word that means the Valley of Hinnom. And do you know where the Valley of Hinnom is? It's right outside of the walls of Jerusalem. If you take a trip to Israel today, you can see the Valley of Hinnom. Now, it doesn't look the same as it did in biblical times, but in biblical times, the Valley of Hinnom served as a couple of things. One thing it served for primarily was the garbage dump of the city of Jerusalem. And so there was all sort of uh, garbage and rotting carcasses. You know, you had a dead dog. What did you do with it? You threw it over into the Valley of Hinnom. You had the garbage. What did you do? You took it over in the Valley of Hinnom. So you can imagine how smelly and gross and disgusting it was. Well, plus, what would they do with the garbage as well? They would try to burn it. And so constantly in the Valley of Hinnom, there were smoldering fires and maggots and just all kind of filth and disgusting things. It was a terrible place. Now you can see why the Hebrews started thinking of the place of ultimate punishment and torment to be a place like the Valley of Hinnom in the world beyond. I mean, obviously, they didn't believe when you died and you're wicked, you went to the Valley of Hinnom. They were using it as a word picture. That's where this Greek word Gehenna comes from. Now, let me tell you something about hell or Gehenna. 
It's also known by another name in the New Testament, known as the lake of fire. The lake of fire, which, by the way, has several names in the Bible. It's known as Gehenna, the lake of fire, everlasting fire, everlasting punishment. It's also known as outer darkness. Nobody is in the lake of fire right now. Let me say it again. There is nobody in hell right now. Nobody. Now, wait, you've really confused me now, Pastor David. I thought that when sinners died, they went to hell. Not yet. The lake of fire, or Gehenna, or hell as it's properly known, is the place of final settlement of judgment. And no one, except for a couple very special exceptions, known as the beast and the false prophet, no one will go there until what the Bible calls is the great white throne judgment. After the great white throne judgment, that's where the damned will spend eternity. In hell, Gehenna, the lake of fire. I'd say, okay, well, fine, but I'm still confused because where are sinners right now when they die? They're in Sheol. They're in Hades. And let me show you what Sheol and Hades are kind of all about. Turn to Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. Now, some people have wrongly assumed that the story that Jesus is about to tell is a parable or is a fictional story. I want you to notice that nowhere in this story does Jesus say it's a parable. As well, never in a parable does Jesus ever call someone by name, but he does so in this story. I believe that this is not a parable, that this is a true account. Verse 19, Luke chapter 16. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Let that register in your mind. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. You see what's going on here? Both of these men, Lazarus and the rich man, have gone to the same general place. They can see one another. Afar off, but they can see one another. One is in a place of blessing and comfort. That's Lazarus. The rich man is in a place of pain and torment. Now, they're in this place together. Now, you might ask, why isn't the rich man, excuse me, why isn't Lazarus in heaven? Because the work of Jesus Christ was not finished yet, and he could not go to heaven yet. You see, before the finished work of Jesus Christ, the righteous and the unrighteous dead went to the same general place that is known as Sheol or Hades. That's why Hezekiah can say, I don't want to go to Sheol. Now, they went to the same general place, but there were, if you want to put it in these terms, two compartments in Hades. One, a place of blessing and comfort, known as the bosom of Abraham, because Abraham being the father of the faithful, that's where everybody hung out with Abraham and just had a good time, you know? 
Say, here, have a cold soda, you know? You know, enjoy yourself, you know? Let's, let's just wait. We'll just pray together, have a great prayer meeting, and we'll bless the Lord until Jesus comes and frees us. That was the blessed part, but there was also a place of torment. And as you see here, verse 24, then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us. You see? The same general place. They could see each other. Maybe they could shout to one another. But they could not cross between the two areas. Now, the understanding of this in Hezekiah's day was very cloudy. It was fuzzy. They didn't know. All Hezekiah can say is, listen, I know I can praise God now. I know I can serve God now. Hey, the world beyond, I know we're going to live in the world beyond, but man, I don't know what it's like. I want to play my bet safe. Lord, keep my life here. Matter of fact, David says similar things. If you want to go to Psalm 6, you can turn from the Luke passage and go to the book of Psalms, Psalm number 6. Look at verse 4, where David says, Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there's no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? In other words, David isn't denying the fact that there's life beyond the the grave. He knew that. But he's saying, I don't know what it's like. Maybe we can't praise you the same way we can praise you now. And so the Old Testament is, I might say, curious in its understanding of the world Beyond, They knew there was a life beyond, and occasionally you have these bright, shining, brief lights of what it's like. For example, turn back to Job chapter 19. Since we're in Psalms, Job is the next book to the left there. We may as well just turn. Job chapter 19, uh, beginning at verse 25, where Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. I mean, hey, you yeah, preach it, Job. But this is is an occasional shining light. That sounds, well, we don't really know. Why? Again, what's the principle of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10? Life and immortality came to light through the gospel. Now, let me say one other thing here. Occasionally, you will find people who teach false doctrines about the life to come. One false doctrine about the life to come is annihilationism. In other words, that when we die, you're just, the, the wicked dead especially, you're just gone. You don't live forever eternally in torment. You know, maybe you live for a year, maybe a million years, but God just snuffs you out and you cease to exist after a while. Another false doctrine about the life to come that is sometimes taught is the doctrine of soul sleep. What that teaches is that when we pass from this world to the next, 
we don't go right to heaven. We sleep until the time of resurrection. Now, we know that this is not true, and we know that Jesus Christ shut down Abraham's bosom because when Jesus died and when he conquered death, he went down to Abraham's bosom and he said, guys, I paid the price, come with me to heaven. And now Paul can write and say, hey, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Not to be in Abraham's bosom, but to be in heaven, to be with the Lord. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, God put a big fat sign over Abraham's bosom portion of Hades, and he said, close for business, go right to heaven. Now, the place of torment, that aspect of Hades, that's still open. And that's where people go until the great white throne judgment. Now, what's interesting about these doctrines of soul sleep and annihilationism is almost always... They make their scriptural foundation, their quasi-scriptural foundation for those teachings, from the Old Testament. And what do we say? We say, listen, if there's any subject in the Bible that you should say, let's give the New Testament preference over the Old Testament, let's make it on the subjects of life and immortality, which were brought to light by Jesus Christ and the gospel. So always be suspicious of any doctrines from the world uh, regarding the world beyond that make their foundation in Old Testament scriptures. Instead, say, all right, well, let's see what the New Testament has to say about these things as well. Well, Hezekiah didn't know all this. Let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 38. Hezekiah, he just didn't know. So he says, if you notice here, chapter 38, At the end of verse 14, he says, Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. Since Hezekiah lived before the finished work of Jesus, he lived under the bondage of the fear of death. And how different this is for the believer in Jesus Christ, for whom the death has no sting, death has no victory. I'd say it's unfair to compare Hezekiah with Paul and to expect it from him, right? Because he didn't know. He didn't know, but we do know. Now, in verse 15, here's the answer to Hezekiah's prayer. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me and he himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit, so you will restore me and make me live. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness, but you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption." You have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. The living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. The father shall make known your truth to the children. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs with string instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. Now, I love how Isaiah begin, excuse me, Hezekiah begins this passage of praising God. If you notice it there in verse 15, he says, what shall I say? He has both spoken to me and he himself has done it. Shouldn't that be words in the mouth of every believer? First of all, when you consider all the great things that the Lord has done for you, what can I say? Man, I'm speechless. But then he says, for though he has both spoken to me and he has done it. It's all the Lord's work, both in word and in deed. So what are we left to do? Hey, what can I say? It's the Lord's work, both in word and deed. And then he says, notice it here in verse, 
12, no, excuse me, I'm sorry, I looked at the wrong place, in verse 15, where he says, I shall walk carefully all my years. Isn't that a good promise to make? Especially for a man in Hezekiah's place. You know, there you are, your life has just been spared. God has delivered your life. God has given you more years than you expected. You thought the death sentence was going to come close, and it's delayed. It's not going to come so close. So even more, you should say, I'm going to walk carefully all my years. But in the end, might I say that it was only a good promise if Hezekiah made it good, right? Look at what he says here. It was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. That's what he says there in verse 17. You know what he means there? Well, I think we should admire Hezekiah for his own uh, honesty, for his own self-knowledge. You know what he says? He goes, man, this was bugging me. It wasn't for the glory of God. It wasn't for the glory of the kingdom of Judah. This was upsetting me. It was for my own peace. Then he goes on to talk about how he knows he can praise God now, but he doesn't know about it in the world beyond. Now, before we go into verse 21, I need to follow up on something that I said before in that passage where he says, I shall walk carefully all my years. How did Hezekiah use those 15 years that he had left? Well, part of it is we're going to see in next chapter how he used part of those years. The next aspect of it is he gave birth to a son in those last 15 years. His son's name was Manasseh. And Manasseh was only 12 years old when he took the throne. Therefore, it was three years after this that Hezekiah fathered a son named Manasseh. We say, well, that's great, isn't it? Praise the Lord. Not exactly. Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings that the kingdom of Judah ever had. Sadly, Fathering Manasseh was not a worthy achievement. Listen to what it's written of Manasseh in 2 Kings chapter 21. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. As a matter of fact, God specifically targeted Judah for judgment because of the terrible sins of Manasseh. That's in 2 Kings chapter 21. So you know what? I wonder, I wonder if Manasseh, excuse me, if Hezekiah would not have been better just leaving it in the Lord's hands. Instead of begging for more life, I wonder if Hezekiah, when he looked back on it, you know, maybe from the perspective of eternity, and say, Lord, my greatest legacy in those last 15 years was to father the most wicked king that Judah, or one of the most wicked kings that Judah would ever know. It's a tough call, friends. I don't know. Maybe this is going to be one of those ones that we don't get settled until we get to heaven and get to sit down and talk with Hezekiah and the Lord at the same time. But you know, we have to say that sometimes it really is just best to leave our lot with the Lord and to leave what even seems to be clearly good up to heaven. I mean, who could argue that it's good for Hezekiah to be healed? Well, maybe it wasn't. But the Lord answered his prayer. Now, verse 21 and 22. Now, Isaiah had said, Let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil, and he shall recover. And Hezekiah had said, What is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Apparently, 
The Lord used this as a medical treatment. At the very least, he used it as a sign, sort of making a poultice out of figs, and I'm not recommending this at home, uh, but he says, you know, use this, and I don't know what you do. It's hard to get, grind up fig newtons or something and rub it on a sore. I don't know. But doesn't this show us that God often does and definitely can bring healing through medical treatments? Friends, medicine's not to be despised. I mean, apart from an unusual direction by God, medical treatment should never be rejected in the name of faith. Never. You know, somebody has a a severe medical problem and and you pray and they believe they're healed. I always tell them, go to the doctor. Well, why? Because you don't believe I was healed? No, go to the doctor so you can prove you were healed. But you know, the, the doctor can help you. God gives doctors and medicinal things as a gift from heaven. We're not to despise that. I'm not saying that there wouldn't be a very unusual situation where God would speak to the heart of a believer and say, I don't want you to get any medical treatment, just trust me. But we would have to agree that that's a very unusual situation. And normally, God would just say, hey, use whatever means I put at your disposal. Chapter 39. Now, this is relevant to chapter 38 because it shows us another thing that Isaiah did, excuse me, that Hezekiah did with his 15 more years of life. It's not all good. Look at verse 1. At that time, Meredith Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to King Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Well, here Hezekiah is all better now. You know, he's walking around the courts. Hey, feeling great, you know. And then one day there's a knock on the door. And who is it? Well, it's uh, Meredith Baladan. You and I, we read that, and yeah, well, so what? This was a very famous guy in the ancient world. Now, at this time, what was the, the empire that ruled everything? The Assyrians, right? Who was the junior or up-and-coming empire? The Babylonians. Now, it would be a hundred years until the Babylonians would replace the Assyrians. But guys like Merodach Baladan are already saying, listen, we don't like the Assyrians, we're going to do whatever we can. This is what you need to understand. This visit from this Babylonian prince unto Hezekiah, it wasn't just to give him a get well card and a a thank you present. It was to establish a connection between Babylon and Judah against who? Against the Assyrians. So this was more than just a courtesy call. But he does show a gesture of kindness from the king of Babylon showing concern to Hezekiah as fellow royalty. Now, let's get a, a feeling of this, too, of the, the, the relative strengths of these nations, all right? You've got uh, Judah and Babylon. The Babylonians were a far superior and sophisticated nation to the nation of Judah. Judah, small country, kind of backwater hicks. Babylon, now there's a kingdom. There's a mighty kingdom. So, You need to get the idea of prestige here, right? Look what happens, verse 2. And Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory, and all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. You get a bad feeling about this? Well, good, you should. You can imagine how flattering this was to King Hezekiah. After all, Judah was a lowly nation with little power, and Babylon was a junior superpower, a superpower in the making. 
And to receive this kind of notice and recognition from the king of Babylon, well, man, that must have made Hezekiah feel really important, right? You know, well, it's about time these guys paid a little notice to me. You know, yeah, you know, me and the king of Babylon, we're just like this. Well, look, he's sending me presents and his own son. And what does he want to do in return for this display? He wants to ingratiate himself with them and show them how great he is. Well, you know, let us show you that we're not just a bunch of hicks around here in Judah. Let me show you all my treasures. And he broke it all out. And can't you just imagine Hezekiah wanting to please these envoys from Babylon? You can see it, can't you? Walking through the halls of the palace. You know, Hezekiah feeling so important. So, yes, you know, I finally arrived. And, well, yes, you know, isn't this nice? And look at all my treasures. Yes, and fine art galleries. Yes, yes, isn't this nice? You know, it's the kind of thing where they, after all, they would retire to the smoking room to smoke a cigar and, and swirl the brandy around. And, yes, we're all dignified gentlemen here, aren't we? You see, Hezekiah did everything he could to impress them, and he showed them the very best riches of the royal household. He showed them everything. Now, as the coming rebuke from Isaiah will show, I hope I didn't tip it off for you, but Isaiah's not happy with this. He's going to rebuke Hezekiah. This was nothing but proud foolishness on Hezekiah's part. Hezekiah is in the dangerous place of wanting to please and impress man, especially ungodly men. Now, it was a genuine compliment for Hezekiah to receive this recognition from the king of Babylon. But you know what Hezekiah did wrong? He received it wrongly and he let it go to his head. It's easy to get too puffed up when people compliment you or recognize you. And it's, begin to, it's easy to begin to take their praise and ourselves too seriously. That's what was happening with Hezekiah here, right? In this place of wanting to please man, Hezekiah is no longer a true servant of God. Remember what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He said, For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. When we live to please men, we cannot at the same time live to please and serve God. When we live to please men, we're really living to serve ourselves, aren't we? Now, let let me say this. You can live to serve God, you can live to please God. But when you live to please men, you're not living to serve men. Who are you serving when you're living to please men? You're serving yourself. Because why do you want to please men? So that you can feel better. Friends, it's a glorious thing to live to serve men for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's a glorious calling. But that's an entirely different thing than to live to please men. Serve them, yes, but not to live to please them. So here, Hezekiah shows it all. What should Hezekiah said to the envoys? Well, he probably should have said, listen, thanks for coming. Thank you the king of Babylon for his gift, right? You want to show gratitude? He should have been polite. But he should have said, in fact, I have a divine promise that God will protect me and I don't need to associate myself with the Babylonians for protection against the Assyrians. God will protect me. I cannot turn from faith in the promises of God. Thank you for coming. Bye. That's what he should have said. Now verse 3, then... 
Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and he said to him, what did these men say to you and where did they come from you? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they came to me from a far country, from Babylon. Can't you just see this? You know, Hezekiah is so, ha- hey, Isaiah, did you hear what happened? You know who came to me? You know, you, know, you know who brought me a gift? I showed him everything. Well, look, he says so in verse 4. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, and he's probably so excited when he says this. They've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I've not shown them. You see, my friends, there's, there's the flavor here that Hezekiah was proud to tell Isaiah all this. He's like the small town boy who's awed by the attention of the big city man. Isaiah, you should have seen how impressed all those Babylonians were by all that I have. They really know we got something going on here in Judah. But Hezekiah is just like any one of us. Pride and an inflated ego make you blind. So look at verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. By the way, is that a good beginning or a bad beginning? Well, it depends. When you're in trouble and need God to defend you, then you want the Lord of armies, because that's what the Lord of hosts means. But when you haven't been obedient, you're not asking for the Lord of armies to come. Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house And what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah thought that this display of wealth would impress the Babylonians. All it did was show them what the kings of Judah had and what they could get from them. And one day the kings of Babylon would come and take it all away. You want to read up on it, 2 Kings chapter 24, 2 Kings chapter 25. Describe how the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar came and exactly fulfilled all of this. Now, by the way, it would be more than 100 years after this time, but it happened just as surely as it did. By the way, we're getting into the portion right now in the book of Isaiah, which is a very important portion mostly in the first 39 chapters, the first 38 chapters, we've dealt with the the superpower of Assyria, right? Now, there's been prophecies to different nations and to Judah, but it's like the shadow of Assyria and the Assyrian threat has been over everything. Now, there's a different shadow over the rest of the book of Isaiah. From this point on, it's the shadow of Babylon. And say, well, wait a minute, though. Babylon wasn't a superpower for 100 years. How could Isaiah be describing, you know, the deliverance that God from Babylon and all the great things and this and that? How could that? Well, I'll tell you how God could describe it. Because God knows the future. This is the section of the book of Isaiah that drives the skeptics crazy. They say this could not have been written... At the time of Isaiah. So you know what they do? They say there's two Isaiahs. Well, some people say there's three Isaiahs. I don't even want to go off on that. That's Friends, Jesus Christ said there's one Isaiah. Jesus Christ quoted from both passages that folks say was written by one Isaiah and then a later Isaiah. You see, because Isaiah predicts things so spectacularly specifically, such as this, that they say, well, he must have said it after it happened. No, my friends, there's a God in heaven who knows the future. 
And so Isaiah predicted this 100 years before it happened. I want you to know this, that Jesus quoted both from the first Isaiah and as it's said to be, the second Isaiah, and he said they're both the same Isaiah. That settles it for me. He said this is what's going to happen. And if you notice here, it says that not only would they take away the riches, but verse 7 says that they would also take away your sons. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Worse than taking the material riches of the king of Judah, the king of Babylon would take the sons of the king of Judah, his true riches. And you know who was one of the most notable fulfillments of this? Daniel. Daniel was of royal lineage. Now, by the way, this gives us another insight. Many people, probably correctly, believe that Daniel was made a eunuch. We never hear of a wife or a companion for Daniel because Daniel was probably made a eunuch And this is undoubtedly what was prophesied by uh, Isaiah. And that would not have been unusual because in that day, many high officials and royal courts were made eunuchs to make them, well, if you want to say, more focused upon their job and and more loyal to the king. Now, we're going to conclude tonight with verse 8. And this is curious here, if you look at it together with me. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, At least there will be peace and truth in my days. That's a sad state of heart in, king, in the king of Judah. You know, you, you read a lot of commentaries in, in preparing to teach the word of God. and You'd be amazed how many commentators try to make excuses for Hezekiah here and try to make it sound like what he said wasn't all that bad, but there's no two ways about it. This is not a good attitude of heart. God announces coming judgment, and all he can do is respond with relief that it's not going to happen in his lifetime. In this Hezekiah shows himself to be almost the exact opposite of an others-centered person. What is he? Here he's showing himself to be a self-centered person. As long as it doesn't hurt him, well, praise the Lord. All he cares about is his personal comfort and success. Now, it would be unfair to judge the entire life of Hezekiah based on verse 8. There's no doubt that Hezekiah started out as a godly king, and overall, his reign was one of outstanding godliness. Yet his beginning was much better than his end. Hezekiah did not finish well. God gave Hezekiah the gift of 15 more years of his life. But the added years did not make him a better man, or a more godly man. How much more time do we have? How much more time before our Savior, Jesus Christ, comes for us? Could be soon, my friends. Could be very soon. How much time do we have if the Lord should tarry until we pass by the forces of nature or some accident to the world beyond? I don't know. You don't know. My question for you tonight is, how are you going to use that time? Is that time between now and the time you go to be at home with the Lord, is that going to be time when you're more godly or less godly? Time or age does not necessarily make us any better. I want you to consider tonight that time does nothing but pass away. Sometimes we say, time will tell. 
Time will heal. Time will bring out the potential in me. But time will do nothing of the sort. Nothing. Time will only come and go. It's only how we use the time that the Lord has given us that matters. And Hezekiah did not make good use of the extra time that the Lord God gave him. So isn't it exciting that the Lord has given you more years to walk this earth and to grow with him and to make your end better than your beginning? To finish well with him? I pray the Lord would just make us all leave here tonight excited, thrilled, to not be like Hezekiah, to finish well. Friends, I believe it with all my heart that God willing and you willing, I know God's willing on this one. I pray that we and myself is willing on this too. That friends, the best years of our Christian walk are ahead of us, not behind us. May it be that way. Father, we want to thank you. Thank you for your word, Lord. And I pray that you would help us tonight, God, to take seriously the idea of finishing well. and Lord, I, I want to pray tonight for anybody listening to, to us here this, this evening. Well, Lord, not only do they need to finish well, they need to start out in that walk with you. I pray, God, that uh, people who are hearing this who don't know Jesus Christ will say, I'm never going to finish well if I don't start. And that they'll give their life to Jesus Christ and trust in what their Savior did for them on the cross instead of trusting in themselves. So we love you. We praise you, Lord. We thank you tonight. And we just lift up our hearts before you and ask that you pour out your grace upon us that we might finish well for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.